Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, gather around. It's time for another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is February 3rd, 2021, and we are talking micro strategy world now. Day one recap. That's right. We're covering the conference heard around the world. That's right. And micro strategy, this isn't their first conference ever. They actually do this conference every year. This is just the first time they've uh, done a Bitcoin portion of the conference. And this is our first time covering it this year. And if they do it every year, we'll cover it every year. But um, as you know, this is their first year doing a Bitcoin portion of it. And this is the first year this publicly traded company has significantly (laughs) heavy bags of Bitcoin. And this is the first year that uh, the chairman and CEO, Michael Saylor, is um, is a darling of the of Bitcoin industry. Seriously, he is. Uh, he's one of the uh, Bitcoin bulls. And a lot of people really love this guy, you know, myself included. He really talks and walks the Bitcoin walk. Um, he has been all over the place spreading the Bitcoin gospel. And today he has his conference and he's talking to corporations and we're excited as hell to cover it. I was watching it all day, covering it virtually. And, you know, I'm excited to bring you all the, all the latest highlights. And I, you know, mainly I just want to keep you up to date with what's going on in this corporate adoption space for Bitcoin. Because honestly, like, the, the reason everything is going to rise and how we're going to get to 75K at the end of March is because of what's going on here and, and what's being discussed and, and what these people talk about, right? Uh, because we're a lot of us that listen to this are, are, are retail traders, right? And so we kind of need to know what's going on behind the scenes, behind, <laughs> behind the closed doors, right? So our first day agenda here for, for MicroStrategy is... They're going to present a comprehensive overview of topics that corporations need to kind of implement to get Bitcoin a strategy, kind of to kind of get it on their books, right? To get it in their treasury, to hold it as a reserve asset. And they're going to be talking all about their strategy. They're going to be talking about integrating Bitcoin into the balance sheet. And they're going to be talking about financial operational systems and execution considerations legal and regulatory considerations and accounting tax audit considerations i'm going to bring you the best highlights of it all i'm not going to try to bore you to death so with that let's jump into it let's jump into the highlights for world now
So let's jump into the first, first speaking. And right off the bat, they did something pretty special. They jumped into the Bitcoin macro strategy because I think they wanted to kind of start off with, you know, this this reason as to why Bitcoin matters. Right. That's that's usually how you want to get people to understand, like, why, why is Bitcoin important? Why is Bitcoin a solution? Why is Bitcoin considered a reason to care? Right. Why is it a store of value? And, and why is Bitcoin a problem solver? Right. And so they discuss all sorts of things. Um, they go into the pros and cons. They go into the macro, macroeconomic outlook for the coming years. Uh, they go into you know critical developments over this past year. Um, they go into COVID and all that stuff. So listen to this. This is probably a good about a good um, twenty minutes. Um, and they go back and forth, Michael, and this other person. And I wish I knew his name off the top of my head, but they literally shut everything down. And they're going to replay everything for Friday. So I wasn't able to grab his name. This is how fast they pulled all the coverage. I was so lucky to grab all this audio because they pulled it so fast. So I'm glad I got it pulled for y'all. <laughs> Anyways, uh, listen to how, what they talk about. So this gentleman, I I, I wish I could. I'll, I'll tell you his name. Hopefully next time I see it. But I, I look back on the website. It's completely gone. No, but it's Michael talking to this other gentleman and this gentleman explains everything that has gone on through the uh, kind of COVID, post-COVID, pre-COVID with Jerome Powell, with everything that we have discussed, right? Um, through this whole downturn. And then they talk about Bitcoin and then Michael jumps in and they go back and forth. And then you see how Bitcoin is not only an investment grade, not only safe haven, but it truly is a problem solver for the future uh, of, of the world. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a magnificent, magnificent way to start off this conference. And I think this is probably one of my favorite conversations that I heard all day. Take a listen. We're December 2018, Fed meeting day. The markets are down 8% for the month, so nerves are frayed. And Powell comes out of the meeting and he says, the balance sheet runoff, so coming out of QE, it's on automatic pilot. And with those two words, the market just loses its mind. It just dropped 5%. Trump says he's going to fire him. And things kind of go ballistic at that point. And I don't know if you know this, but Fed policy is that the day after a meeting, nobody in the Fed's allowed to talk publicly, but the day after the day after they are. And at the very first opportunity that Powell has to walk back his remarks, he saves space and do it himself. But he trots out Williams, who's the Fed president of New York. And Williams says, plans are not promises. We will reassess the data. The market knows exactly what that means. And it rockets up 15% in the next month. So like Hayami, complete capitulation. Hayami took seven months out of two days, right? Let's do one more. Let's fast forward to last March. The ECB, Christine Lagarde is in charge. Let's talk about March 12th to be exact. And she is president when spreads on Italian bonds, so what they are essentially over, over German bonds, they're blown out. And she says her version of risk must be price. She says her version of automatic pilot. Remember what, remember what she said? She said, and I quote, we are not here to close spreads. Are you sure, Christine? The markets go ballistic. Um, during the press conference, spreads keep widening and widening out. Um, she actually doubles down 
She says it's not the function or the mission of the ECB to close spreads. She kind of thunders that. Spreads blow out even more. And do you remember what happened? Complete capitulation, except it didn't take regard the seven months it took Hayami or the two days it took Powell. Two hours. It took her two hours. In the press conference, two hours after the speech, she completely walked back her comments with the quote, I am fully committed to avoid any fragmentation. All is is okay. Turns out she was there to close spreads after all. And in fact, her capitulation was so complete that the ECB took the unprecedented step of revising the speech with the conference afterwards. The new Fed mandate is let's finally once and for all institutionalize moral hazard. So to foam the runway for this, this, new, this new mandate, what does he do? Jerome goes out and he starts buying securities at a scale the world has never seen or imagined was possible. He starts buying about a day's worth of US GDP, a, a, a day's worth. So I want to I put that in human terms. All the work, all 350 million of us do. We wake up in the morning, we get our kids to school, we go to work. All of the work of all of us. You know, I picture Jerome kind of getting to his desk, gets the keyboard out, and just like control P click. All Americans, collective daily labor, he, he, he just prints. Now, as I said, I don't question central bankers are well-intentioned. I strongly believe they are. But humans are not supposed to have that kind of power over other humans. Um, you know, in the same way that a, a stock certificate is, is titled to company capital, money is titled to human, human time, Michael. I mean, people sacrifice their time for money, which enables us to trade our time for the time sacrifices of others. That's how it's supposed to work. So a tool that can command human time, the central bank keyboard, control P, that keyboard steals time. And it steals time from, from some, particularly and most powerfully, the non-asset owners, the most vulnerable. And it redistributes that time to others, most notably the existing asset owners. It adds rocket fuel to wealth inequality. And it leaves the fidelity of the signal content of prices just in tatters. I think Mark, March... 2020. That was the wake-up call for me. That, that you're a very sophisticated macroeconomist. I was oblivious, but that was like the massive jolt of of some kind of macro shock that caused me to stop and decide that maybe I needed to take an interest in uh, in all of this. And what you know, what you described is pretty sobering. I didn't really know the history uh, like you do, but. Um, you know, it's it's clear now the challenges that central bankers face, and uh, it's pretty clear that we are overlevered as an economy. So, um, I guess the question is, what, what's Bitcoin got to do with any of this, and what's Bitcoin got to do with corporations? I mean, a lot. I mean, in, in my view, kind of everything. Um, I can start with the conclusion. Uh, I'll, I'll work backwards. Um, okay, I like that. Give me the answer. Yeah, I'll give you the answer. The answer is Bitcoin is not volatile. That's, that's the answer. And let, let me explain, okay? Learning Bitcoin is like, at least to me, it's like 
for me, it was like learning a foreign language. You know, you live in Spain for a year or you live in France for a year. And at some point you get, you get good enough. It takes some time with immersion. You think in Spanish, right? You think in French, something clicks for you. You make that, you make that switch. You're no longer thinking like, how do I say, where's the barber in Spanish and doing that English to Spanish translation in your mind. You just think the question in Spanish. I now think in Bitcoin. Okay, it's taken me eight years of morning study. You are much faster than me. You know, I'm a slow learner, but I get there. It's taken me eight years of morning study and a lifetime of, of, of lessons studying the markets. But I now think in Bitcoin and it's, it's very freeing. And through that lens of thinking in Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not volatile. Fiat is volatile. The price of college is volatile in fiat. It keeps getting cheaper. In Bitcoin, the price of prime real estate, very volatile in fiat, keeps getting cheaper. In Bitcoin, the price of all of my long-dated denominated liabilities like a mortgage or retirement, or we do a lot of work with insurance companies, there are long-dated fiat-based liabilities, a death benefit for life insurance contracts or annuity payments. Those are extraordinarily volatile in fiat, and they each getting keep getting cheaper in, in Bitcoin. And so to understand really what's going on and why this is happening, I think we need to ask ourselves two things. One, like what is money? Like what, what is it? And why is Bitcoin an excellent money or even is it an excellent money? So, 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 so what's money? Money is technology. It, it, it is and it always has been technology, whether it's seashells or salt or cattle. It, it's always been technology. It's technology for making our wealth today available for consumption tomorrow. And virtually all of us, you know, Americans, um, we just take for granted that there's a sharp line of distinction between what's a money and what's not. But that's false. There's not a line of distinction. In fact, throughout history, various monies, plural, have always coexisted along a continuum of soundness, meaning good money to, to kind of bad money. And they've always been subject to competitive network effects like any comp competition. In fact, English language and language for humans in general, that was the first network and money was the second. Um, it also means that, that given enough time and at any given time, including right now, no money is absolutely the best money on all dimensions. There are always trade-offs. Um, some are better, some are worse, some are better at this, some are better at other things. It also means that all money is, is, is temporal. No money has ever been or ever will be forever, including Bitcoin. Bitcoin will not last forever. It may last 100 years or 250 years. I mean, maybe forever for practical terms for everybody at this conference, including you and I. But it will, it will not last forever um, because money is just a good, like, like any other good. Um, what, makes, what makes money as a good unique among all goods is that we value it not for its own sake, but for its prospective exchange utility, which means we hope the vessel, whatever we choose to store our money in, we hope that vessel keeps its value long enough so we can trade it in the future for stuff we actually want, right? Nobody actually wants green little pieces of paper. Nobody actually wants Bitcoin. What makes we money as a good unique either? What we want those things to do is to hopefully allow us to trade them for things in the future we actually want, a vacation, a college education, property, whatever. 
right? So it's not that we want the money. We don't want the money. We want what the money can do for us in the future, what we can trade it for. So, so then why is Bitcoin excellent money? Well, I think that's for everybody to make up their own mind. I'll tell you how I think about it, though. There's really two primary dimensions um, that I think money should be evaluated on. Sellability across time and sellability across space. So sellability across time just means, will the money keep its value through time or will it depreciate? Um, you know, the oldest fiat money that's in existence today is the British pound. And 371 years ago, when a modern British pound started, it was equal to one pound of silver. One British pound bought you one pound of silver. Today, do you know what one pound of silver buys you in terms of British pounds? I'm guessing that it buys you more than one British More than one? A little bit. 174. So you used to buy one for one. Now a pound of silver buys you 174 British pounds. And the key here is to understand what changed and what did not change, okay? The silver itself did not change. 371 years ago, it weighed a pound. Today, it weighs a pound. 371 years ago, the silver had certain chemical properties. It's got the same chemical properties today. The silver did not change. The fiat changed. It depreciated more than 99%. So silver crushed fiat. I hate the 99% number. I, I just hate that one. Yeah, I just didn't want to take it out to that many decimals. But, you know, it's 99.7638129. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's basically worthless, right, relative to silver. But, you know, people talk about gold. What about silver versus gold? And the reality is gold has been far better and far more reliable. It's much better store of value than silver because it's scarcer. And it's got a much lower supply growth. Gold grows at about 2% a year. Silver grows about 20, 30% a year. So gold is a much better money than silver, but let's compare it to Bitcoin. I mean, gold still does grow. You print through mining, you print gold at about 2% a year, and Bitcoin's on an asymptotic journey to 0% inflation per year. So 2% a year, roughly times 50 years, and gold essentially depreciates completely versus Bitcoin. So Bitcoin will be worth far more than gold in the future once it clicks for people that gold is printed at a much higher rate and that compounds, much higher, 1% or 2% a year, but that compounds over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But there's another property of gold that makes it weak relative to Bitcoin. And in fact, this is a property of Bitcoin that makes Bitcoin truly unique among any money in history which is that Bitcoin is the first store of value ever in which its supply is entirely unaffected by its demand. You know, if we take the example of gold to prove this point, if gold went to, I don't know, 100,000 bucks an ounce, it's up 50x overnight, you and I know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. The miners are going to get to work very early. Right? I've been mining we, you and I would drop the phone and start mining, right? We're going to start mining. We're going to look around our house for gold. We're going to melt it down. We're going to drive up the supply. We can't skyrocket the supply, but we're going to drive up the supply. We're going to drive up, drive down the price of gold. If during the course of this conversation, people really feel like bullish on Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes to a million, I'm saying that with a smile. What's going to happen to the supply of Bitcoin? Nothing. 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 That's incredible. That's incredible. Bitcoin is the first store of value in human history 
where its supply is never, can never, will never be affected by any amount of its increased demand. So the conclusion is that Bitcoin is better at being gold than gold because it's more saleable across time. Now, the other characteristic about money that's really important is saleability across space. Like, can you move the money around the world efficiently? And this is another place where gold has a really acute flaw. It's just hard to transport. I mean, forget paper gold, because then you're back in sort of fiat land and all the problems of fiat. Gold is just hard to, to transport. And this is where fiat, for all its flaws, and fiat's DOA, but for all its flaws, fiat really shines here. You can move it around the world. And in a sort of an internet world where network power is, is everything, this ability to sell across space is, is, is critical. However, I want to clear up a, a pretty common misperception, which is that Bitcoin is slower than fiat. The reality is the opposite. Bitcoin moves much faster across space than fiat. The key, though, is to compare apples to apples. Final settlement. And in final settlement, there's no comparison. Bitcoin increases our capacity for final, for example, international settlement by 500,000 transactions a day and completes the settlement with finality in about an hour. You know, in international settlement, you're talking two, three, four, five days, seven days, it can be a month, depends on the two countries. You may not, you may not get there. And even within a country like ours, Michael, don't confuse the speed of your visa payment with its final settlement because it's not finally settling. When you go to Starbucks and buy coffee with your visa card, no final settlement occurs. What actually happens is your bank and Starbucks bank they have some credit risk to each other for two or three days. Usually it's fine, but sometimes with disastrous results. And then there's final settlements. Bitcoin settles every hour and it's a bearer instrument. It's the first ever electronic bearer instrument. So credit risk is not a concept. We said earlier that Bitcoin is better at being gold than gold. What we're saying now is Bitcoin is better at being fiat than fiat. It's more saleable across space. And because it's not debt like fiat. It has no credit risk. So the conclusion is that Bitcoin is the best money we have. Maybe it's the best money we ever, we've ever had. And that's why I've learned the language. That's why I now think in it. Okay. I get it. I thought that was so fascinating when I heard him say, I think in Bitcoin. Uh, it literally turned my head upside down. I started, I literally started looking at everything I purchase for the rest of the day in Bitcoin. Um, I'm not sure if y'all kind of feel the same, but I noticed since, since, since COVID, like everything that you kind of go out grocery shopping or even to like a restaurant or even like down the street, like at a McDonald's or a Burger King or even like at a 7-Eleven or anything like I feel like everything has gone up like 25, 35, 45, even sometimes a dollar. Right. Um, and this is just for anything. Right. Um, everything looks cheaper in Bitcoin. Uh, and when he said that, it really started hitting home with me. And the price, as you know, today, Bitcoin rose. Right. It, it shot up to like 38K. Um, and yeah, it, it the price is getting cheaper in Bitcoin. Because if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin stays the same, right? But the price is going up. And so when once he said that, it just 
really started making sense to me. Um, so that's going to take me a couple of days to process. Uh, I thought that was probably one of the really probably one of the most, you know, insightful things I've heard all year when it comes to Bitcoin. So I really enjoyed that whole, you know, hour of, of conversation. And this next piece here is is called uh, Bitcoin corporate strategy. And, and so this whole hour was just Michael Saylor talking about how you can in, in, integrate Bitcoin into a profit and loss uh, as on the balance sheet for corporations. And he talks about Bitcoin treasury strategy and Bitcoin product and service strategy. And he literally has, has talked about this in, in other podcast interviews that he's done in the past. So I felt like this has been covered before. So I'm going to play a little bit here so you can kind of get um, kind of just uh, just a quick rundown of it. But you're going to hear a little bit of this. And this is kind of if you've seen another interview with him, you've kind of heard this before in the past. So here's a little bit of it again. Credit card is another interesting PL strategy. Um, people pay 12 to 20 percent for unsecured loans from credit card companies. What happens when um, they actually post Bitcoin as the collateral? If I basically moved my Bitcoin to you and you gave me a 6% loan or a 3% loan, I could eliminate uh, all that unsecured debt. In fact, you could pretty much uh, rip tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of capital away from the credit card companies and you could move it uh, to a, a consumer bank that uses Bitcoin as collateral and issues consumer loans against those. And that, you know, that takes you back to the PayPal example. PayPal talks about they're going to allow you to fund your purchases off of a Bitcoin account. But really the future of this business is I post uh, $50,000 of Bitcoin or 20,000 in Bitcoin and then I borrow against it. And as Bitcoin appreciates, I never sell my Bitcoin. I never incur capital gains tax. I pay 5% interest against an asset appreciating at 50% a year forever. And so you can reform consumer debt. Um, if you're a device company, look, this, the screaming opportunity for Apple computer is build a hardware wallet into an iPhone or build multi-signature into the Apple Watch, the iPhone, and the iCloud. Uh, I'm at, you know, there's a world where you will be able to take uh, take your Bitcoin off the network, uh, move it. Uh, you know, what is it cold storage or is it uh, is it sort of the key is sitting multi sig between the iCloud, your iPhone, and your Apple Watch in some secure relationship. Um, they can build the secure elements into uh, the computer, into the wearable, into the the, the hardware. Uh, device into the phone or into the back end of the network. I think this is an opportunity for Samsung, for Apple. If you build software like Microsoft, you can build support for Bitcoin into Windows. You can build it into Android. You can build it into iOS. You can build it into all your cloud offerings. You can build it into your back end server offerings. And, and, um, and uh, anybody in the hardware business probably has a play here. If you're a semiconductor company like Qualcomm or Intel, the obvious play is to actually start to spit out SHA-256 ASICs or uh, secure elements of the like. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a market that's going to explode. If you do data centers like AWS or Microsoft or Google, well, you know, 
the greatest data center is that uh, that Bitcoin miner. And if you create modular Bitcoin mining data centers and you're back in integrated into semiconductors, you could drop them in the middle of uh, Africa, you know, on a pad next to shut in or stranded energy. And that could be an interesting thing. Software companies, um, well, we already talked about the operating systems, but but uh, for Facebook, you know, for Facebook, for any kind of messaging company, you can build support for the Bitcoin protocols and the lightning protocols into Twitter, into, into Signal, into WhatsApp, into Messenger applications, uh, into any social network, any communication network. And, uh, and that's the network opportunity. I, I don't really have time to discuss all of those right now, but um, I'll, um, I'll just move on to just one final set of thoughts, which is um, uh, there's a macroeconomic wind blowing. Bit, uh, it's going to impact $400 trillion of capital. That capital is sitting in fiat instruments that are being debased they're going that capital is going to want to convert into strong money and so if you support an on-ramp to to convert that layer of money in that regulatory jurisdiction into bitcoin or a derivative of bitcoin you've got a massive business so think about a cartesian system there are layers of money there are jurisdictions Consumer savings is type of money. Retirement accounts is a type of money. Institutions have money. There are equity funds with money that can invest in the stock market equity. There are debt funds. They have another flavor of money. There's corporate cash, treasury reserves with another flavor of money. There's state and local governments with flavors of money, pension funds, annuities, federal governments, futures and options market. They're all flavors of money. In the U.S., there's a sort of regulatory jurisdictions. If you can solve the compliance issues, you can convert that flavor of money into a Bitcoin derivative. It'll be a different problem in Argentina. It'll be different in the EU. It'll be a different set of regulatory jurisdictions in the U.K. or, or any other country. So if you're in this business, you have to solve the regulatory compliance issues that are changing then you have to offer a product for that flavor of money and don't fall in the mis into the trap of thinking that there's one size that sits, fits all. There isn't. There's someone who can click on a button in PayPal and they can buy some Bitcoin and that's all they can do and they'll be happy. And there's a corporation that can buy a Bitcoin fund and they can buy a billion dollars of it in a day, but that's all they can do and they'll be happy with that, but they can't buy the one in the UK or Malta. And there's a company in the UK that can buy it a different way. If you solve the problem of how you transform the layers of money in the jurisdictions into Bitcoin derivatives, then you're going to see trillions of dollars of capital flow and you will either capture the capital in your bank or in your app, or you'll enable it and you'll get paid. So um, with that, um, I just want to, I want to wrap up uh, with just uh Big idea. If you have a weakening currency, right, the real issue is capital flight, capital flight from the nation, capital flight from a company, capital flight from a family. If you're a corporate CEO, 
you need to preserve your capital. Then you need to invest your capital in something which is strong money that's going to appreciate faster than the rate that the capital and your cash flows are losing their purchasing power. Right. So, you know, like stop the bleeding. Right. There, the idea that you should give up all your capital and decapitalize the company, leverage yourself up is like is the equivalent of bleeding George Washington to death. Right. The, the physicians thought they were going to save his life by bleeding all of the toxins out of his system. But but uh, capital is blood. It's not a bad thing when the cost of capital goes up then the, the solution is not give up all your capital. The solution is expand your balance sheet and invest the capital into strong money that's appreciating faster than the rate of money expansion. All of these uh, corporate strategies, they all come down to the same idea, which is generate strong money, find a way to attract strong capital, uh, attract Bitcoin or Bitcoin derivatives, uh, as revenue, find a way to generate uh, operating income based upon those strong revenues, find a way to hold that capital on your balance sheet, and then make sure that you're converting and financing all of your other assets, which are fiat derivatives into the strongest monetary asset you can. If you do those things, then there's no reason to think that your purchasing power won't appreciate, your revenues appreciate, your income, either operating income or investment income will appreciate. Your shareholders obviously will react favorably to that. Shareholder value will appreciate. Your stock price should go up in the public market and the private market. Um, your balance sheet and uh, and your earnings will simply uh, appreciate and. Uh, they, that should continue for quite a while. So those were the two panels that Michael Saylor did. And I, honestly, I think those were right up his alley. You know, those those were just hitting home with everything he did. And, and, and quite frankly, I am just really impressed with Michael as a, a leader of that organization, as a CEO. Um, it, it's it's quite apparent now um, seeing him as a CEO, as a chairman at MicroStrategy and in his in his company and, and talking amongst his peers, you can really see how how much of a uh, uh, I, I don't I, I you know, I, I don't and I should say this with y'all. I don't use this word lightly um, and I'm not just calling him this because, you know, um, because he's into Bitcoin. But I, I really think this guy is. Uh, is a very smart man, uh, and and might even be considered. Uh, a, I'm not sure what his IQ is, <laughs> but he he might be um, <laughs> he might be he might be considered a genius. I, I'm not I'm not even I'm not sure what his IQ is, but he's probably up there uh, in intelligence. Uh, uh, I'm just very impressed with just his his um, just with everything. <laughs> I mean. Uh, it's, it, it's just, it's just very impressive, like, uh, just top to bottom. Um, and so, okay. So that's enough of me just, uh, just oogu ooh and gagging over, over, over this individual, because, you know, it's just, you, it, it it's oh, like, I was just so impressed with the conference. Like it was just so on point, like 
and I don't think I've, I've been to a virtual conference that's just been so on point. I feel like since COVID, like all these conferences that we've been covering, they've just been late or, or just all over the place or just done awful or nothing works or audios in out of sync or it just looks like a complete shit show, you know? And this is the first one that I've, that I've covered where it's just like, everything's on time. Um, and everything is just working like perfect and everybody knows what they're going to talk about and everybody's prepared and it looks like an Apple event, but not, you know, scripted, <laughs> you know, and it's just really impressive. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I just want to say kudos, kudos to the entire MicroStrategy team for putting this together and just looking completely like this is how we do things. Just, I'm just very impressed. That's all I'm going to say. Um, okay, now let's go on to the next um, panel. So the next panel was the Bitcoin corporate playbook. And, and this one featured Fong Lee. He's the president and CFO for MicroStrategy. This is another very intelligent individual. Um, and so he talks about all the kind of um, key strategic and kind of the operational side of of the business that you kind of have to put in place before you start integrating Bitcoin just into your treasury, <laughs> believe it or not, you have to kind of put a lot of um, um, key systems in place and, and, and key risk controls in place. Uh, and believe it or not, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, technical aspects that have to be done and due diligence. And of course, like vendor selection and corporate governance. And he talks a lot about that. And he just talks about how, you know, it um, it's a chance for, you know, future opportunities and and, and potential, you know, um, potential risks, but potential, you know, opportunities, too, as well. So um, I think he does a very good job of explaining all that and how they kind of hedged it up and, and, and took it upon themselves to really uh, take it upon themselves to, to actually really integrate it. And, and really take it take it by the horns. So take a listen as they talk about that here on Corporate Playbook. Uh, so you need to understand the accounting considerations, a lot of thoughts around tax, right? Uh, whether you, uh, you know, sort of have a loss or a gain on your Bitcoin, on your balance sheet, how do you tax for that? Uh, and then uh, intercompany and inter... Uh, border, you know, movement of money for and and Bitcoin also has tax implications. Uh, internal controls is a big one. Uh, you know, it, it, as we work with other providers, whether it be exchanges, whether it be custodies, whether it custodians, whether it be funds, uh, making sure that they have all their right controls in place. Uh, SOC uh, one, SOC two, you know, two reporting and, and all those types of uh, things have to be uh, considered. Uh, also, you know, I'd mentioned considering the Investment Company Act and seeing that applies to you, uh, whether the company and what company entity to use as an investment vehicle. Uh, that's important to know. Uh, and also, uh, you know, looking at audited financials at the Bitcoin vendors and partners that you're going to be working with. So a lot of analysis to do on the finance side before you make that first investment uh, into Bitcoin. Um and then also, uh, where's the money coming from? Right? What are the sources of funds? Uh, what funding needs may you have? Are the sources of funds onshore, offshore? Do you need to repatriate cash to be able to invest in Bitcoin? 
both of these areas, the, the I'll call it the, the accounting, tax, uh, treasury analyses, are not much different than opening a new bank account, right? They're akin to that, or they're, they're also similar to if you were to decide to invest into a, a new treasury uh, asset, invest into a corporate bond, invest into a fund, uh, but they come with an additional layer of learning. And that's where you're having advisors in place who, who sort of have done this before are very important. Um, the IT side, sometimes people don't think about, right? Like uh, the reality is uh, when you as a corporation, uh, public company are to invest in something like Bitcoin, uh, you're going to raise your profile. Uh, and in doing so, uh, your social profile, your security profile, and so you have to think about what are the IT risks, what are the security risks, uh, is your IT network and infrastructure, uh, is it uh, resilient, right? Like you may be subject to more uh, external attacks, potentially a DDoS attack, phishing attacks. Do you have those right pieces in place? Have you thought about that uh, impersonation? Uh, and so you want to work with your hosting providers, ISPs, cloud providers, uh, and you want to do pen tests. You want to have some security partners in place, right? So uh, you don't want that to be an afterthought after you made an investment in Bitcoin and you find that uh, uh, some bad actors uh, have thought and, and found out about you and, and want to do something to try to either access your corporate network, disrupt your network, uh, or even get to your Bitcoin somehow. So uh, an important consideration that uh, sometimes organizations overlook. Uh, and then the next one, you know, we get questions all the time, right? What, what is the insurance landscape like out there? for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And, and Jeremy, I know you spent a lot of time getting to understand the landscape. Uh, maybe you can share with the audience some of, some of what you learned through the process. A lot of work here, but it'll be very satisfying, gratifying work because it really lays the groundwork for how to think about this as a corporation on a go-forward basis. Um, next set of items, uh, execution phase, part two. Uh, I talked earlier about IT and systems. Make sure you have the right defenses, changes in place, Make sure that you have, uh, you're ready for any, anything that might happen in terms of bad actors coming into the organization. You may already have uh, some of these things in place. You just want to retest them, ramp them up, uh, have monitoring in place too. Uh, and then you want to go obtain, obtain your insurance. Jeremy talked about this. Uh, insurance via your custodian, insurance via your fund, cybersecurity insurance, DNO insurance. Make sure that all those are all in the right place and everyone feels good about it. And then start putting together your SEC disclosures. Right. And, and there could be quite a few, right, depending on the materiality of the decision that you're about to make. Uh, 8Ks, 10Qs, 10Ks, et cetera. Uh, these are all things that you want to work through and think through. And they'll follow in large part some of the things that you've done in your accounting memo, too. Uh, and then your communication strategy, right? We talked about investor relations, but also employee communications. Uh, your employees may wonder, okay, so what exactly are you doing? Why are you doing it? For those who are less well versed in Bitcoin, and whose knowledge might be, you know, circa 2008, they'll ask questions, you know, about sort of the more seedy side of historically cryptocurrencies, and you want to be proactive. Uh, one thing we did is some of the uh, the education documents that we made available on our website, uh, we made that not just available for all you, but available for our employees too, right? And so getting employees well-versed in what Bitcoin means uh, and cryptocurrency means uh, and typically, just just like with our with with our stakeholders, uh, employees spend a couple of hours on this and become fascinated and very interested, and they, they're like, hey, "This makes complete sense." Um, investor relations we talked about, and then public relations, 
right? What proactive communication channels do you want to use? Uh, what I love about this part of the world, um, when you get into cryptocurrency, into Bitcoin, uh, the public relations channels are quite modern, right? Think Twitter, think YouTube, think Medium and, and things like that, blogs. Uh, and so you don't have to rely on, you know, print communications. You don't have to rely on your traditional PR firms who may actually not be very familiar with the space and know what to do. Uh, here you can use ingenuity, creativity, and start to modernize the image of your company, not just in how it invests, you know, from a treasury side, but also how you communicate out to uh, all the different constituents. Uh, and, and you can really play around with this and have a lot of fun, especially, uh, especially on Twitter. Uh, so good things that can happen as you think through your communication strategy. Um, and then you prepare for your big board meeting where the, where approvals are going to be made, right? Associated committee meeting documents, resolutions, conduct the board meeting, go through investment committee, audit committee meetings, uh, approve the treasury reserve policy or the treasury policy, approve the BTC trading policy, uh, approve the accounting policy, usually through an audit committee. Uh, approve and agree on brokers, custodians, uh, clear any conflicts of interest. Once you've gotten through this execution phase, uh, this is a big one, uh, but once those approvals are done, you're, you're sort of off and running and, and ready to go and start to talk about your initial foray into Bitcoin. Uh, and that's really then you get into the post-execution phase, right? So once you've done it once, how often are you going to do it? What's the timing? What's the frequency? Making sure you have a nice treasury plan in place for subsequent Bitcoin purchases. Uh, you know, what do you do as a communication basis going forward? And then you start to trade. Uh, and, and, you know, after, after six months of having done this, uh, couldn't be more thrilled that we did. and couldn't be more thrilled to share with all of you uh, our playbook. Yeah, so really fascinating stuff. And, and that playbook that he's talking about, I'll go ahead and put it in the show notes. Uh, they open sourced it for everybody. And they even took out a lot of their, um, I guess it's it's kind of like a uh, kind of like a template, right? So they took out all of their headers and stuff like that. So you literally could put your, you know, corporate name in there, your you know, CEO name, your chairman's, your treasury secretary, your all that stuff. You could basically put all that stuff in there and you could have that as a, as, as records. Right. So, um, they literally have all those templates and I went ahead and put them inside the show notes. So they'll all be there in the newsletter if you wanted to look at that. And that's the project roadmap, the key considerations for corporate investment in Bitcoin, the treasury reserve policy, the Bitcoin trading policy, the contractual considerations for digital asset custodians, the Bitcoin accounting treatment considerations, and the corporates investing investing in crypto. And these are all PDFs, so you can click on them, download them, and um, share them. So yeah, um, pretty cool stuff that they open source. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't believe how much they were actually just like really just really giving it away. And that, that was one of the other things like that I was really impressed with today was just how MicroStrategy has laid out a concrete plan for every corporation to add Bitcoin to its treasury. Like not only did they have these panelists, but they even had one-on-ones that you could go and have with these, with these people. Right. Um, and then they had all this reference material that you go and and research out, right? 
Uh, and then they also had, you know, all the interviews that Michael Saylor's done over this past year. They have all that inside of this um, virtual conference. You can go and watch them. These are hours upon hours of interviews. And then they have all these articles, you know, that he's interviewed on. They have all these resources, right? Like the Parker Lewis stuff at Bitblock Boom, the stuff that we covered last year. Well, yeah, they went ahead and posted that stuff inside of this conference. You know, it was fascinating. So like all the stuff that we would that we would bring you, <laughs> they pretty much put inside of this conference, which was just like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like they literally did all the work for the corporate people and just basically said, here you go. One other thing I should mention is that, all, yeah, like I said, all these docs are going to be inside of these show notes so you can take a look at them. Um, and then just in case you know somebody or if you have an LLC or a corporation that you want to you know, put Bitcoin in your, uh, in your treasury. You could do that as well too. Um, so this next panel is called Bitcoin legal considerations. That's right. And I thought this was going to be the most boring panel of the day. It starts off boring. I'm not going to lie. The first three to four minutes Sounds really boring. And I'll tell you why, because it gives you an overview of key legal and regulatory considerations. And to be honest with you, that's the stuff that really bores me about crypto. It really does. I really have to like really, you know, wrap my head around it and, and really get into like, okay, car, let's, let's come on. Let's really try to learn this. You know, let's do your due diligence, right? Uh, let's try to learn the policies. Let's try to learn the procedures. Let's try to, let's try to get these considerations down. Um, but Towards like the middle of this, it really starts picking up and you're like, whoa, for real? This is why this is why ETFs are ETFs and this is why securities are securities. And this is why Bitcoin's not a security. I, I, and like, I thought I knew this stuff, right? You know, uh, and I thought I knew why all this other things. And you, you really get you really hear it from a lawyer's mouth. <laughs> so take a listen. This is probably the most. This is probably the most informative out of all the panels today that I listened to. I was like, wow, I probably learned the most from this panel. Uh, the first panel is probably the fun, I, the, the most fun I had. But this panel is probably where I, I like, this is my vegetables. This is the stuff that's going to help me learn for the long run. And this is the stuff that I'm going to go home and be like, you know what? I know some stuff. I can drop some knowledge bombs, right? So this is the stuff that you're going to take home and you're going to be like, you're going to be much smarter for, for knowing. So take a listen. Some of the most important legal aspects and then showing how from a legal perspective, all these things come together uh, to support a successful corporate Bitcoin project. Now, I know that when some people hear the word legal, um, they think that things are going to get a technical or perhaps very specialized and hard to understand. Uh, please don't change the channel. Uh, we have made the presentation and discussion format uh, geared for non-lawyers. And I think that's uh, actually very important. Um, as Fong and Jeremy were touching on in their last presentation, um, we found that implementing a Bitcoin corporate strategy really does require a lot of good collaboration uh, among different individuals and teams, especially the finance, uh, legal, internal controls teams, uh, the board of directors, our senior most executives, external advisors, and other constituents uh, in the organization. And so we want to be sure to promote uh, cross-functional uh, uh, learning that we think is useful for pretty much any uh, corporate uh, Bitcoin project. 
speaking of collaboration and advisors, uh, joining me in the session are three other uh, panelists. All of us worked very closely together on the legal matters uh, for MicroStrategy's Bitcoin initiative. Uh, they're going to introduce themselves, uh, starting with my colleague, uh, Yuna Green. Yuna? Thanks, Meng. Happy to be here. I'm Assistant General Counsel at MicroStrategy, and I work very closely with Meng on corporate governance and securities matters. I helped Meng with our Bitcoin initiative pretty much from the beginning and worked on the legal aspects of the initiative in one way or another. Uh, next up is Dax Hansen. Uh, we didn't work actually with Dax before we embarked on our Bitcoin initiative, but I'm sure glad we found him since he helped us navigate a lot of the uh, regulatory considerations. Dax? Thanks, Ming. Um, my name is Dax Hansen. I'm a partner with Perkins Coie, where I chair the firm's blockchain and fintech practices. And today I'll be focused on the unique regulatory and technology aspects of Bitcoin that are relevant to a Bitcoin investment strategy. Okay, our last panelist is Tom Ward. He's our longstanding uh, outside uh, corporate and securities counsel who helped us transition as a publicly traded company from our pre-Bitcoin era, so to speak, to our, our post-Bitcoin era. Tom? Thanks, man. Uh, I'm Tom Ward. I'm a partner in the corporate practice group here at Wilmer Hale. And I'll be focusing today on corporate governance, securities regulation, disclosure, and some policy and procedures aspects. Um, Great. We'll, Go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll find that, that all of these um, aspects uh, work together. Uh, what I've talked about, what Dax talked about, you and Ming, um, but I don't think people will find it ultimately to be overwhelming. Terrific. Um, so what exactly are the legal lessons we're going to be talking about? Uh, here are the five that we think may be the most uh, useful to other corporations that are starting to consider uh, adding Bitcoin uh, into their treasury. You can read them here, and we'll go through each one of them. Um, before going any further, though, I did want to make uh, one more plug for the documents that we have open sourced. Uh, Fong mentioned them in the last session. Uh, we've published about seven documents, um, and we'll be discussing some of them here. Uh, you don't have to refer to them on the website, but we did want to make sure to uh, reference them again so people can know to go look for them afterwards. All right. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, lesson number one. Actually, let me show a picture of the documents that we have up on our website. There they are. And we will move to lesson number one. Uh, what, do you do with, uh, what you do with Bitcoin will drive the regulatory issues. Um, as it turns out, uh, what you do with Bitcoin precisely can make a huge difference in the regulations that apply. Um, Dax, you're a seasoned lawyer when it comes to the regulatory landscape uh, that applies to cryptocurrencies and especially Bitcoin. Can you give people uh, an idea of the main areas of regulation? I think it's a good starting point uh, other than the securities laws, which uh, we'll, we'll talk to Tom about in a minute or so. Absolutely. So there are three core regulatory areas that a company needs to consider with the Bitcoin strategy. And the first are the federal and state money services business laws, such as those that are administered by FinCEN. Uh, money services business laws prevent money laundering and terrorist financing, and they impose uh, reporting and licensing and examination requirements on non-bank financial institutions. 
Um, a company that's merely investing in Bitcoin usually isn't going to trip up against these uh, money services business laws directly unless that company expands the scope of their activities to include things like wallet or exchange services. The second area that's relevant on the regulatory side are the federal sanctions laws, such as those that are enforced by OFAC. And uh, sanctions laws really protect us by requiring that all U.S. persons avoid dealing with the enemy, such as criminals and terrorists on certain government lists or by uh, dealing with certain embargoed countries. Sanctions laws are, are relevant to someone who's investing in, in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is an international digital currency network, and uh, it will be important for a company to uh, vet its counterparties against those government lists. Third, uh, commodities laws, uh, such as those that are administered by the CFTC, impose requirements and restrictions related to trading and other aspects of contracts that derive their value from an underlying asset, such as um, futures contracts and, and swap contracts uh, that might be tied, for instance, to things like barrels of oil. And a company that's investing in Bitcoin that may wish to hedge the volatility of the Bitcoin price may want to um, work with derivatives to hedge that risk, and if so, would want to, it would need to take um, a close look at commodities laws. Thanks, Jack. So it seems clear that many laws can apply to Bitcoin activities. So, for example, if you're a Bitcoin exchange or you provide uh, Bitcoin custodial services, um, there are special laws that you need to comply with or licenses that you need to get at the federal or state level. Um, but let's focus here uh, on the upshot for our purposes. Um, you know, can you explain why a strategy of merely buying and holding Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset doesn't need to drag in a lot of those laws as a practical matter? Sure. Yeah, I think there's really two reasons. The first is that investment in Bitcoin is not the type of activity that these laws were intended to regulate. You know, conversely, a company that's investing in Bitcoin is actually the type of entity that these laws were designed to protect, for instance, in its dealings with custodians and, and brokers. Great. So uh, I think what that means is the laws are still there in the background. Um, and in fact, a lot of those laws need to be complied with by the vendors, right, that, that one uses if you're the corporation that's just buying and holding Bitcoin. Your vendors, in many cases, are going to need to pay attention to those laws. But let's let's pause there on those particular laws. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about securities and we'll come back and wrap things up in a moment. Um, you know, Tom, you're a securities lawyer. And uh, uh, I think it's a really important question uh, or, or issue that we need to get on the table right at the beginning, which is, Bitcoin isn't considered a security. Um, and it's a really, really important uh, significant fact because it means a lot of the SEC regulations that would apply um, if Bitcoin were a security just aren't going to apply. And this is particularly important for publicly traded companies because obviously publicly traded companies have to pay a lot of attention to the securities laws. Um, can you explain why Bitcoin isn't a security? Uh, sure, man. let me uh, go through it a little. Um, 
everyone knows that stocks, bonds, options, and the like are securities. Um, and by contrast, cash like dollars or gold aren't. Um, the, the current SEC test basically says there's a security created when there's an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit derived from the efforts of others. So using this test, actually, the SEC has taken the view that some digital coins are in fact securities, um, mostly because they represent passive investments that require a promoter to build out a network um, and make the enterprise uh, connected to that coin successful. Bitcoin's a little bit different though. Um, the SEC's view is that that network is currently sufficiently decentralized. Pur purchasers no longer expect any person or group to be carrying on managerial or entrepreneurial functions. And so that doesn't really fit within the test for security. And so if you have no central third party whose efforts are determining the enterprise and the network on which it is functions operationally, there really isn't a reason to apply the disclosure regime of federal securities laws to Bitcoin. And so senior SEC officials have said that they're of the view that under the SEC's current test, Bitcoin does not constitute security. And in that way, Bitcoin in some ways is quite different from other things that you see in, in initial coin offerings. So Bitcoin's not a security. Uh, what does it mean about, you know, whether a company like MicroStrategy that has uh, acquired and holds Bitcoin uh, becomes an investment company? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad, glad to clarify this, but I know you get this question quite a bit um, from folks. Hey, uh, we hold Bitcoin. Why, why isn't there an investment company active? And the answer to that is that the statutory definition of an investment company depends on a company either holding a specific percentage of securities or holding itself out as an entity that primarily invests, reinvests, or trades in securities. So the fact that Bitcoin isn't a security for SEC purposes basically means it's outside the purview of the Investment Company Act. And so that's why uh, MicroStrategy isn't an investment company. Now, similarly, we, we, we get the question often uh, whether MicroStrategy has become an ETF because we hold uh, as much Bitcoin as we do. Uh, can you explain also why we're not an ETF? This is an important point to underscore as well. Sure. I mean, uh, ETF, as everyone knows, stands for exchange traded fund. And exchange traded funds are registered investment companies that invest in securities and then their interests in turn trade on markets. Uh, MicroStrategy is not an ETF in part because we're simply just not a registered investment company, uh, basically because of that issue of Bitcoin not being a security. Um, in addition, ETFs are structured sort of completely differently from MicroStrategy and corporation. ETFs have arrangements with financial institutions to keep their market price and net asset values close to each other by having the uh, institution engage in arbitrage by either uh, redeeming shares directly to the ETF in exchange for the underlying assets or by purchasing shares in the ETF. MicroStrategy has none of those rates. No shareholders entitled to exchange MicroStrategy shares for any of its underlying assets. So in short, no, MicroStrategy is simply not an ETF. Okay, so to recap, Bitcoin is not a security for securities law purposes. Um, MicroStrategy hasn't become an investment company because of the Bitcoin that we've acquired and hold. We're also not an ETF. Um, let's just change the hypo a little bit. What if a company like MicroStrategy uh, wanted to uh, invest indirectly in Bitcoin? So not directly invest and hold it, but buy, say, shares in a Bitcoin fund. Does that change the analysis at all? 
So, so I mean, absolutely it does. As Dax was saying earlier, you know, how you exactly deal with Bitcoin really affects the regulatory regime involved. And that applies on the security side as well. If, if you invest indirectly in Bitcoin through a fund, for example, now you're within that SEC definition of a security because you don't hold the Bitcoin, you own, you own fund shares. And those fund shares are going to um, be deriving their value in part from the actions of the fund manager. So in that case, um, the company, those would be considered securities and the company would then have to start looking at those investment company act thresholds as to how large, how, what amount of securities the company can hold um, before it becomes an investment company. Now, there may be ways to structure fund investments to avoid tripping those thresholds, but uh, those get very complicated and maybe beyond the scope of this presentation. Okay. So we just did a very, very quick tour of a number of different areas of the law that can apply to a company's interaction with Bitcoin. Um, but, but there's a key takeaway here, uh, and I want to mention this as we wrap up this first lesson. And that is that for an operating company like MicroStrategy, merely buying and holding Bitcoin directly for treasury purposes means many regulations like the money services business laws, commodity regulations, assuming you're not hedging or engaging in Bitcoin derivatives, uh, and the Investment Company Act, et cetera, they just generally aren't going to apply directly to a corporation like MicroStrategy. And that, that really was an important point for us uh, because it meant that investing in Bitcoin turned out not to be as daunting from a regulatory standpoint as we thought it might be. Now, if your business uh, wants to do something more or different uh, with Bitcoin, like what a PayPal or a Square or Coinbase does, then other regulatory considerations would definitely come into play. But for just buying and holding Bitcoin directly for treasury purposes, the regulatory demands are actually much more limited. Uh, still things to consider, but very manageable. Pretty interesting stuff, right? Yeah, I thought so too. I was was really surprised how interesting that was and and not as as, as boring as I, as I thought it was going to be. I really thought it was going to be really boring. Um, and I was surprised how not very boring it was. <laughs> uh, and, and so the last panel, because there's really only five five panels today. They're about an hour, hour and a half piece. And the last one is finance considerations. And this one we're all going to be pretty already aware of because this one features Deloitte and I, and I, they never said during the, the, the panel, but I think MicroStrategy ended up working with Deloitte. They're an accounting firm and they helped them uh, with key finance and accounting and tax audit considerations for integrating Bitcoin. And I think that's who they went with and who they partnered with to, to get Bitcoin as a, as a treasury reserve, you know, asset into their into their balance sheet um they never said that during the panel but i think that's who they partnered with um and so the speakers of course are fong lee uh and then they have rob massey and they have amy park um but if you remember we we covered deloitte i think it was two years ago when we went to ethereal summit and you know a consensus does ethereal they're the ones who put on ethereal summit and they're they partnered with deloitte and we've covered deloitte in the past when they've done their conferences so um, we're very comfortable with Deloitte. A lot of the stuff they said we, we've kind of known about um, because they 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 do their own kind of blockchain and they're involved with uh, with uh, I forget the name of the blockchain consortium that they're working with. But um, a lot of the stuff that they're doing, uh, we really kind of known about. So a lot of the stuff that they say we kind of kind of already heard before. So this is going to be a really small little piece, but um, definitely a place that you could reach out to 
for a lot of this type of uh, considerations, right? When it comes to accounting, tax and audit and risk and strategies, uh, strategic considerations. So um, take a listen and, and really interesting stuff because towards the end, <laughs> uh, Fong asked a question about Bitcoin and it's funny how, how the answer. So take a listen. I think particularly as other forms of investment may not be viewed as kind of giving people the returns that they want to expect. And if you look at the price of Bitcoin recently and how it's pretty much soared, I think people are now um, getting more comfortable with actually holding it. So several years year, years ago, I think a lot of companies were very hesitant to hold it. You're now seeing a lot more um, you know, mainstream players, like you mentioned before in some of your earlier sessions, Fong, about you know, com- companies that are getting comfortable holding it. Um, I think also, in addition to just holding Bitcoin, you know, companies are are looking beyond um, holding it as a form of investment, which I know is what you know you and MicroStrategy um, and your company is doing. But they're also looking at it as a form of payment from their customers. So we see that, or using it in their businesses. Um, you know, we we see a lot of companies who are also interested just in the underlying, like the blockchain technology. So how do the how does that technology get used, and what what are the different use cases that they can use within their businesses? Um, we're also seeing funds who are starting to hold more and in terms of digital assets and giving um, you know, the everyday investor the ability to invest through their funds and invest in these digital assets. And I think clearly by your registration numbers for this conference, there's obviously a big, a big interest and big um, you know, focus on, on just learning more about, about digital assets in general. Um, so I think that's a couple of things that we've been seeing. I don't know, Rob, if you wanted to add a few things on what you've been seeing as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. We, we've seen Bitcoin on balance sheets for almost a decade now, but you didn't know it was there because it was small, right? Yeah. It was it was retailers that were taking it. They'd hold a little, but not much. They, they'd convert, you know, real time to, to fiat and, and, and leave it there. So the accounting questions have been around, the tax questions have been around, but it didn't matter as much to public companies because it was a material. Now it's really there, right? It's in a big way. It's showing up in public financial statements. These are these are material transactions and material investments. It causes people to dig in. So it's I, th- I think it's the brand names engaging um, those who are investing, the, the corporates investing, but also, you know, we've seen funds invest in the space for a long time, new entrant kind of funds. Now it's the brand name funds that are looking to engage, you know, some level of exposure to, to digital assets because people are asking about it. And um, and Bitcoin does bring a, a unique value proposition among others. And it also, it's a, it's a different type of asset when you look at accounting and tax considerations. So I'd say last 12 to 18 months, it's it's the same, just just bigger, more bold, you know, brand names bringing it into to mainstream. Yeah, right. Rob, and, and at least like when I was at the FASB and we were doing um, some of the outreach as part of our pre-agenda research, you know, at the time that was, it was about five years ago. So, you know, quite a bit of a time ago, um, most people that we were talking to were saying, you know, one, they if they were holding it, they didn't necessarily want you to know. <laughs> and that certainly changed. And two, if they were holding it, they were very hesitant to hold a large amount. And so it wasn't material and you weren't seeing it in disclosures and um, you know, investor reporting, et cetera. So that's definitely something that's that's changed over the last several years. Yeah, so it sounds like the wave and, and, and is, is really starting to move in the corporate direction. Uh, which is great. And, and so you put out a recent white paper that we also have on our website uh, on the Bitcoin for Corporations page 
uh, on Bitcoin for corporations. And uh, and thanks for doing that. I, I thought it was very thorough and well written. Uh, tell tell us as you went through that research process and writing the paper, what were some of the, the surprises that came out of it? Yeah, I mean, I I, I can kick this one off. It, it, you know, you, you try and push something out that's relevant to a lot of people, and 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 imagine the questions you get. And and what what is striking is that the points of view about why to engage with digital assets and Bitcoin, and and the value propositions therein, they they have such great range. And in, in why you would engage in, in, in levels of risk. And, and the nice thing is that, you know, it, it's tailorable to a lot of, of people. You know, you could cho- choose to engage a little bit or a lot, different levels of risk in the business or outside of the business. And all of those have you know, unique tax, accounting, regulatory controls considerations. And so it's, it's hard to boil something down into a few pages. <laughs> but, but know that, you know, we, we, and I know you even referenced Fong sort of a playbook about how to approach something like you did, which, which is appropriate. But, but boy, that playbook changes um, drastically when, when you think about how it's used in the trader business, where it's used in the business, levels of exposure, and then how that tone is set differently by management, board and and how it can you know change on a moment's notice so that's that was the big takeaway just the range you know how do you how do you push something out that's succinct but applies to a broad range of folks got it what about you, yeah. what about you well and for me it maybe it plays a little bit on rob what you were saying but and also fong i think you had mentioned earlier in one of your earlier sessions this the the aha for me was just the amount of collaboration that's necessary so you know working with microstrategy you know, all the calls we had with all the different folks within the organization and outside of the organization, it's a, it's like almost a cultural mind shift or a change. And you need to really get everybody on board. And it's not like you can just go invest in Bitcoin and like a silo can just go and invest in it. You really need um, to work together within the different, you know, parts of within your organization. So, you know, legal, finance, ops, risk, internal audit, audit committee, I mean, the list goes on, but then also with the right advisors, right? To Rob's point, you know, we try to provide a playbook, but everything is also always comes down to facts and circumstances. And for every company, it's going to be slightly different, or you may decide to do things differently. So making sure you have the right advisors and um, the right type of advisors who have, you know, that, that expertise. And so I think the collaborative nature of it is, is something that's unique and and making sure that everybody is on board and everyone's educated, like they understand what we're doing. And, and I mean, I think, um, you know, the folks in the organization who don't usually deal with accounting, I think within MicroStrategy, they all know accounting now. They, they, can, go, they can talk accounting too. They could sit here and, and you don't really need me, but just making sure that everyone's, you know, knowledgeable and educated. And um, that collaborative aspect, I think was for me, um, you know, for me, a big takeaway, not only from our experience with you, but just as we were thinking about, you know, what is it that we really want to tell folks who are interested in this and, and realizing that they can't just go out and do it, you know, in a silo. Yeah, you know, just Real to quick. add to that. Go, so, ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Rob. I mean, I need to say, we've been talking about collaboration a lot, but Fong, you set a higher bar. <laughs> we would get on these calls. There were like 30 different people, both within MicroStrategy and other advisors and crossing competencies. But you are you set an incredible tone of collaboration. Like you all need to listen and lean in 
and engage to understand the dependencies that exist between all these different competencies, because all the norms of what you did in the past, those are all gone. This is new. And, and I think you in particular, Fong, you set a great tone of collaboration and engagement. That was what you expected and, and you got it. Yeah, that's very kind of you, Rob. I, I think there's also, you know, I call it sort of the Bitcoin community, the Bitcoin ethos. It's uh it's almost like there's a a once you you know you show everybody your Bitcoin tattoo and you're part of a group of people who are like-minded uh, who have similar very positive beliefs around technology and the ability of technology to solve problems and we as a software company absolutely believe that but uh, once you get into that group everyone is working towards the same objective and everyone knows there's a greater good to what you're working on. Uh, you know, you heard that from Ross, you heard it from Mike, you see it from the people who participate in the chat here, like there is something that everyone believes in together. And I think that does drive that collaboration. So um, one of the interesting things I saw you write around, write about in, in your paper is, you know, when, when you start thinking about treasury, corporate treasury in general, right? The, the, the Historically, people think of the role of treasury is in some cases a risk management role and preservation of capital. Right, really minimizing risk and making sure that the money is available for corporate use and purposes. And and of course, for a long period of time, the safest way to hold your capital in a low risk manner would be either a T bill or just U.S. dollars. And, and I think what you heard, especially from Ross, make a pretty strong argument for is that is just no longer the case. It isn't the safest place to hold your capital. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's a pretty provocative point of view. It's one that we've taken and we think 2020 really changed it. Uh, but what, what are your, you know, you've been in the space for a while. What, what do you think about that? And are corporations waking up to that aha moment? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the last one to, the last qualified person to say what's, what's right or wrong. But I'll tell you, it's an increasing conversation and it is becoming the norm. And it's, it's coming in through the board or treasury or management or shareholder group or something like somebody is raising the question. And so what's, what's good is that it's now become a conversation and there are frameworks and there are structures. And the, what I, what is most important, I think is to be ready for the conversation because it's not a light topic. And if there's a chance that this is somewhere on your radar for discussion, you need to be armed with what it is, what are the considerations, at least at a high level. And if there's a chance that you will engage you know, allow the runway to to do it thoughtfully because there's a lot of challenges and, and pitfalls along the way. So I think there's the, you know, be ready for the conversation. And if there's a chance that the conversation is going to land land in execution, then then be be just readiness. You know, what does that look like for you? You know, who who's the team? Do you have the the right um, folks engaged at the right level of education to absorb this this massive shift in what treasury and, and those decisions might look like, particularly if you're a public company. So it's, you know, it's a real conversation. I think readiness is critical. Okay. I think also being informed, you know, make it your, your own decision, not because someone else is doing it and, and understand the risks and the benefits. And, you know, I think that's with any type of treasury management function where you're, you're managing, you know, you're balancing what are, what are the risks that you want to take versus the benefits that you think you're going to perceive you receive. So be informed about that decision making. And I think, Fong, you mentioned that earlier today about just, you know, read, read up, on, read up on it and understand what we're talking about. Um, and so being informed, I think, is really important. 
Okay, so you guys are going to punt on that question because you can't directly advocate for Bitcoin. Is that what's going on? <laughs> but it's it's a thing. It's real, and there are really educated people who are qualified to make that choice, saying you should study it. And so, I think everybody should have your own opinion so you can facilitate a conversation between the board and management and shareholders. Okay, I get it. I saw you wink when you said that, so I'll consider that 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 good enough. They're really good. So during that panel, they wouldn't even like they wouldn't even hesitate. That just shows you how serious accountants are. Like really strict accountants. Uh, even my accountant, they were like, she's like super strict. They she won't blink. Um, <laughs> so it, it just goes to show how serious they are. Um, but it's funny because you can have conversations about Bitcoin with them, and they'll laugh. And they'll think it's funny. And then when you talk about Bitcoin, personally, they just stay quiet. Mum's the word, right? Uh, so I, I got a kick out of that at the end. Uh, anyways, so I think overall, I think the conference for the first day went really well. I think it was spectacular. I think this whole open source strategy is a big win. Of course, Bitcoin went up today, but there was several big news that came out. Visa signaled further crypto ambitions with their own pilot for bank customers to buy Bitcoin. We reported that here in Bitcoin in February. So you know about that. Um, you know, of course, PayPal released their revenue where they saw quarterly growth. Why? Because they added Bitcoin. That's why. <laughs> There's no surprise to that. I don't know why people are surprised about that. Uh, so everything's good. Okay. Yeah, it's always hilarious when like you have like the mainstream media cover these new these companies who enter into Bitcoin. They're like, wow, you saw all these returns. Uh, is it because you had a Bitcoin? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> what do you think was going to happen? It's inevitable. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, we have the second day of uh, Bitcoin for corporations here at MicroStrategy World now. Um, it's going to get pretty interesting. This is where they start adding in their partners and they're going to start covering the strategic vendors and offerings in the Bitcoin market space. This is Coinbase, Binance, this is Kraken. Uh, this is Fidelity, this is Grayscale, this is Gemini, this is Paxos, this is Galaxy. So we're going to cover all of that. We're going to do our best to cover uh, most of those companies. Uh, you know, some of them I really don't like. <laughs> you already know which ones I'm looking at right now where I'm like, uh, we'll do our best to play neutral, to play nice with all of them. So um, yeah, look for coverage on that tomorrow. See you next time.